This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. I'm Louisa Furia, a second year MRC student at Columbia GSAP. I'm speaking with Lola Shepard, founding partner of Lateral Office and associate professor at the University of Waterloo in advance of her lecture at the school on February 18, 2019. Based in Toronto, Lateral Office is a design firm that operates at the intersection of architecture, landscape, and urbanism. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. So I want to start because there seems to be a renewed interest recently, at least like here in the school, um, in the writings of people like Buckminster Fuller or uh, Rainer Banham, people who, you know, talk about architecture being in favor of a more technological means of producing controlled environments. I'm wondering, because you guys deal a lot with environment, um, if you can explain where this fascination now is coming from um, and where, I guess, lateral office kind of situates itself within this interest in context and environment. I mean, I think in some ways, my sense is there is maybe an interest in relinquishing a bit of control from the technical or the technological, I should say. And in, you know, people like Michelle Addington and Sean Lally and Philippe Brahm, and there's a whole, and David Gisson in some Mm -hmm. ways, are talking about this sort of idea of environment that is certainly man-made or, 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 produced through design, um, but that is perhaps more porous to uh, the vagaries of the larger environment, which is, I think, partly what Bannum uh, talks about in this sort of famous diagram Mm -hmm. of the campfire and the tent, Um, this idea that there are two ways of making environment, one through uh, the production of heat, which produces comfort and works through a kind of force of attraction, and then the tent, which is ultimately quite Mm -hmm. low-tech, but keeps the elements out. And I think that in some ways, that is where our interests lie, um, is less in environment as a highly technological thing. And actually, if anything, perhaps pushing back at architecture to say, can it enter into a much more fluid dialogue and and allow the environment in and work with the environment. And this, of course, is catalyzed in, in some of our thinking about the Canadian North, where You know, architecture has been um, conceived of as the envelope to keep the brutal elements out. And while that, you know, is an inevitable responsibility of of the building, um, we are interested in learning from sort of indigenous practices to say there's, there's perhaps more other ways to interface with the environment and that the building can be or the structure or the infrastructure can be more porous. Mm -hmm. So then I I wonder what the role of research is in the practice, because you guys do so much research, um, it seems. And I'm wondering how you find opportunities which are so often overlooked, because you guys are really tapping into like some very kind of like funny, bizarre, you know, um, instances in certain places. Maybe we can talk about it in the context of the Canadian North. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is actually, I think, from very early on, we we got interested in looking at what architects weren't looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and partly there's a sense there's so many people, you know, in cities like Toronto and New York doing good work that we weren't sure 
you know, what we could add to the discourse there. Um, and, and we got interested in, in precisely these places where um, there is no rules of engagement, where there is mm -hmm. no, often even a model for architecture mm -hmm. or uh, urban design or planning. Um, and, and so the only way to operate in those environments is to begin with intense research. You know, there's no, there's no precedent for a street or a public realm right. in the north, you know, in a, in a, in a region, for instance, where um, people were entirely nomadic you know, until mm -hmm. 60 years ago, and then we imported southern models of uh, planning and housing. So these environments where there is no obvious answer, I would say, demand kind of research and demand res a, a very broad research that is, you know, cultural, sociological, uh, economic, logistical, because all those things um, shape how we build, particularly in, in more extreme environments. Mm -hmm. But I would say that you could bring that same kind of research to seemingly more familiar environments like North American suburbs, right. you know, where, where when you look at it with fresh eyes, they're completely surreal environments, the <laughs> way we shop, the way we move, yep. uh, what we do to ecologies. And so... You know, the, the extreme environments perhaps uh, demanded in a more obvious way, and also I think culturally and socially complex environments or places where one isn't familiar. I have a lot of my students are, you know, their theses are in, you know, Kenya or Uganda or Mauritius. And um, not only do I not know those environments, but sometimes they're only partly familiar. And this idea of sort of digging deep to learn cues from the environment, I think mm -hmm. is um, kind of crucial for architecture to be responsive. Yeah, I mean, looking through your work, the thing I was most fascinated by was the typologies then that you guys did kind of end up creating, like, um, for instance, health hangar, you know. Um, I'm wondering if there are other examples of moments that, you know, a seemingly strange architectural logic came out of an equally maybe strange, or maybe not so strange, um, you know, kind of reality. Well, it's, it's interesting, actually, that specific example of the health hangers, when we were, that came out of a very early, one of our first sort of design excursions looking at the North. We had done some research, and we said, well, we, we actually had an exhibition, and so we had no choice but to quickly produce, a, 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 and we intentionally produced multiple projects um, to, to sort of be able to circle around a range of questions. And as we were designing the health hangers, I thought, this seems completely absurd. Like I, I, <laughs> yeah. Even I thought, I feel like we're pushing the limits of things. And interestingly enough, six months later, I found an article um, that, was, that preceded our work by 10 or 20 years that basically advocated for exactly that. Oh, Back wow. in the 60s saying, you know, the, um, the military bases and the airports should be tied to health provision. And so... It's interesting, and, and a similar example, um, we worked on this project called Making Camp that looks at new camping typologies. And while I, would, I wouldn't say they're you know, completely far-fetched, given the conventions of camping today, they're, they're certainly perhaps pushing the limit. And um, Parks Canada came to see the exhibition, and I thought, they will, they will sort of laugh at us. And, and it turned out that, in fact, they were having very similar conversations. Um, and so I think, I think this is part of a skill that architects have that we undervalue, which is an ability to work um, 
we're not perhaps the most specialized. You know, we're not ecologists, for instance, who know everything about plant matter or uh, and ecosystems. Or we we are we are a bit of a sort of jack of all trades in some cases. But I think one skill and and that and those skills are being encroached on, as we know, by you know structural engineers and facade consultants, et cetera. But we have an ability to look across you know, culture, technology, and spatial conditions, and to synthesize opportunities. And, and part of what we're interested in is expanding the agency of architects and um, advocating that we come on earlier. Um, and right. so, you know, architects are typically brought in once there's a brief and a site and a budget, and we're there to give form. And that's certainly important, and there's certainly tremendous uh, opportunities in that. But I think that that sometimes being able to come in before the site has been chosen, before the brief has been defined, um, before the sort of stakeholder, all the stakeholders have been identified, is, is a real sort of skill that we have. Um, and so in some ways, these projects are also about that. But how do you then engage, like, I mean, you guys deal with huge ideas like food, you know, infrastructure, water, energy, which... It seems to be kind of dictated by, you know, policy or economics, things that are not generally within the, you know, direct um, grasp of the architect. I mean, how do you even engage with those things? Like, how do you speak to different stakeholders? So, I mean, certainly, you know, some, especially some of our earlier, uh, more infrastructural projects, um, were were sort of early forays into these questions, and had we, um, you know, something like Sultan, the Sultan Sea project, which interestingly enough, people reached out to us and said, "We think you're onto something," you know, the geography and various other reasons we we didn't, you know, pursue it extensively. But I think that that the next step would have been precisely as you say to reach out to, um, you know government stakeholders, policymakers, um, and that's to some degree what we've been trying to do in the Canadian North, um, particularly in Nunavut where we have built up a sort of range of contacts and, and, and it's a very, there's no doubt, it's a really slow process. But I think that in many instances people don't recognize that design even has value. And so even on projects where they, you know, don't necessarily materialize as projects, you know, in a even medium or long-term range, the idea of, of reaching out to policymakers or government officials that may not even have this on their radar, I think, mm -hmm. is is a valid um, sort of enterprise for for architects, or one of the things that we can do. And there there are many examples of architects that work as advocates and um, or shift into policy making, etc. So um, we're, we're interested in using design as perhaps a kind of beginning of proof of concept or um, but when there, there would be many ways into it, I think. Yeah, it seems like it, it's a lot of, you know, it's testing the ideas and not necessarily like answering something. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Which is, I mean, also very exciting because then it just brings up a whole other kind of slew of questions that also need to be um, brought up. I'm wondering in terms of like the different scales that you guys work out, what I'm 
think is really like pretty beautiful in a lot of your projects that the interventions themselves are not these giant massive interventions in fact they can be quite small but that the way that they are either interacting with the landscape or the people they they kind of function on like a network scale so you're building small but it's really kind of functioning really largely and I'm wondering how how do you build something not massive for an idea that is massive I guess I mean, I think it's a great question, and I, it, it's um, it's been very much, uh, I think, part of our thinking. This precisely this idea of can can you work at the highly local, but think at the scale of the mm-hmm. territory. I, I think the the legacy of the sort of mega structure or the legacy of large scale infrastructure, particularly in sensitive environments, we know has not been not <laughs> not resulted for the most part in particularly positive environmental outcomes. And so I think it, it does also speak to this idea of research and mapping and um, spa- spatial analysis at various scales. Um, and that's something we were really interested in um, in the Many Norths book. Each uh, So there's five chapters. Each chapter looks at one theme, architecture, urbanism, uh, monitoring, um, mobility and resources. And and there's a set of case studies in each chapter. And the case studies intentionally start with a regional scale drawing of some sort Mm -hmm. and then try and materialize down to the scale of a building or sometimes equipment you pack on a sled. because I think that, that that is actually how humans sort of inhabit their environment. You know, whether it's someone commuting from, you know, Long Island to New York, and at one point you go through the turnstiles, but you've covered huge territories, or if you are an indigenous person that, you know, might cover hundreds of kilometers, but in the end make camp at one point, and what is the sort of technologies and things that you know, to speak to Banham's point, you know, make make their environment in that moment, um, and I and I think that um, it allows one to be more tactical. It allows um, allows things to be incremental, which I think has been the failure of massive projects. Is there's no there's no feedback loop, right? right? You build it, and then <laughs> then only when it's all done can you learn if it worked. Whereas I think something like the Arctic Food Network, which was, you know, precisely these many nodes, the idea was that, um, and even those nodes were then made up of a kit of parts of many possible structures. And it was a recognition that we couldn't possibly know without intensive consultation what each community might need. And so it was an idea of a kind of menu that they could curate, um, but also that you could build one point on the node or one point on the map, if you will, and then perhaps build the next one and the next one, and that the project would work if only three hubs were built or if 10 hubs were built, and and that it gave the project a kind of resilience socially and economically. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, too, in looking at these maps and talking about like this kind of research, mostly because I am in like a very map heavy curriculum (laughs) this semester how you because you're talking about a lot of things that are kind of intangible or they change a lot over time it's really hard to represent in any way especially on a map and I'm wondering how then you do that because if it's if you can't represent it it's almost like it doesn't have you know spatial consequence necessarily or maybe it does but 
Yeah, the, the one of the criteria is can you spatialize it in some way, whether it's at the scale of a map, whether it's a scale of, you know, an exonometric of uh, materials, uh, whether it's literally trying to draw out someone's activities, um, but that if it if it isn't, if we can't find a way to spatialize it, um, for us that that is a bit part of the criteria, um, because I think that, it is in spatializing that you can start to fold it into design thinking. Um, and and that, that is in a way maybe the first test of whether, whether it's something you can sort of grapple with as a designer. Yeah. Finally, kind of on an end note, I want to ask about the kind of, I guess, intent of these projects. Um, not necessarily in the Canadian North, but I think that that one um, is maybe a good one. But... I'm wondering what kind of marks you want to leave in spaces like this. I guess if is the question, you know, to create new conditions or to respond to something that already exists because there are at least up there in my mind so many questions about things like, you know, extractive industries and then the shipping of that like, you know, raw material and then the question of the Inuit population that's already there and you know, what kind of governing bodies are happening. I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions <laughs> up there and I'm wondering, you know, what's, what, do you, what do you leave, you know, there? I would say there's many answers. I think the first one would be to even create a discourse and discussion that architecture matters, which in the context of the Canadian North, particularly the Eastern Arctic, which is where we've done more work, that isn't even on the radar for mm. the most part. There's there's such a history of how quickly, how fast, how cheaply can you build right. that the idea that architecture can be a sort of tool of empowerment, that it can mark place, that it can materialize culture um, because there's no tradition of it in particular and because architecture, if anything, has been a sort of brutal force of colonialization. So right. it comes... <laughs> burdened with, with actually a pretty terrible history, that I think, A, to just have that discussion is, is hopefully powerful. Um, I think to, to partly, I don't, know, I don't want to say educate, but, but make people aware also um, of the value of design. And then, I mean, we do hope that we will build, um, and, and some projects got close to being prototyped. We're working on some projects now with various Inuit groups, and, and maybe they will see the light of day, maybe they won't. Um, but certainly it would be nice to yeah. be able to sort of, um, you know, test some of our own assumptions. And I think that um, things move slowly, and I think in the, these contexts, and actually in most contexts, one needs to be patient. Um, whether you're trying to build infrastructure in New York or change policy in a mid-sized city or work um, in remote communities. The question of sort of building buy-in, I think is, is enormous. And, and I think perhaps something we underestimated originally. Mm -hmm. And I think also recognizing that it's a sort of reciprocal model. I think there's a sort of many architects think, what can I do to help the North? But I think that we also can learn tremendously from their ways of operating and inhabiting the landscape. Not, some, not simply in a kind of, you know, touchy-feely way, but actually there's really, um, you know, I think they, they provoke architecture to think differently about itself and its modes of practice, and I think that's been really fascinating for us. 
any new frontiers on the horizon? Um, so, so we've actually been doing some work uh, in, in a less remote area um, in Newfoundland, which is a maritime province in Canada, which shares many similarities, which is, I think, how we got interested in it. Look, they have many small ex-fishing communities um, the, and also dispersed and really tiny. They're road connected now, but, but similar questions of mm. how do you share infrastructure, how do you work, you know, how can one think about networks of social or cultural infrastructure? Um, the fundamental difference being that in the north, the population is booming, and so there's a shortage of everything. And in Newfoundland, it's an aging population and towns are dying off. And so it's a sort of question of, it's almost a sort of shrinking cities phenomena, but at a rural scale. Um, and so it's been equally humbling to uh, realize that one doesn't know what to do in the context, but, but it's also maybe invigorating. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm really excited for your lecture this evening. Thank you so much for the questions. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.